Hi, this is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with an old professor and friend, Martin Meadows. Martin was born in Manila, Philippines, in 1930 to Jewish parents. The family name originally was Medvedovsky, then Medovsky. His father was stationed there in the U.S. Army. Martin's parents liked Manila, and the Depression was on in the U.S., so his father decided to be discharged from the Army in Manila rather than in the USA. After working in various jobs, eventually he was able to start his own business, Manila Office Equipment Company, with Martin's mother serving as secretary. Then came World War II and Martin's family's internment for over three years in Santo Tomas internment camp under the care of the Nipponese Army. After liberation, with their house and business destroyed, they chose to travel to Portland, Oregon, where many of Martin's father's siblings still lived. They arrived in California in May 1945 after a 37-day trip on a troop transport and a train trip to Portland where several relatives met them. Martin received his B.A. and M.A. from the University of Oregon and his Ph.D. in political science from the University of Maryland. He later became a professor and taught in the political science department at American University in Washington, D.C. from 1961 to 1991, where I met him. Martin also yeah. taught at the University of Philippines, University of Sierra Leone, and Dundee University, Scotland. Married to Marilyn, he has had two children, Sally and Rebecca, and five grandchildren, Jacob, Paul, Cara, Demi, and Rachel. We'll talk with Martin Meadows about all that and much more, but first, welcome, Martin. Thank you, Alan, and that just about wraps it up, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Marty Meadows, I'm doing this interview because you're a man who made a difference in my life. How many times can each of us say that something occurred in our lives which made a huge difference? And you can point to the specific moment, the specific time that it happened, and you probably don't even know it, but you did it for me, and I am forever grateful for that. I'll tell you the story, Marty, if to bore you a little bit more. Um, I, you know, I got down to American University. I was depressed. I had been on the Washington semester program where you were my professor. I had gotten a full boat at another university in the Midwest, and I decided at the last minute, because I had a girlfriend, that I was going to stay and go to Washington AU. I had no money. I had no scholarship. I had nothing. And I just got in a line. And... There were two graduate advisors, one of whom, I shouldn't mention his name, I won't, and the other guy was a guy by the name of Royce Hansen. And without even waiting, you said, get in the line for Royce Hansen. And I said, no, but the other guy, <laughs> the other guy has nobody in his line. <laughs> and you said, what do you think he has nobody in his line? So, <laughs> so... So I got in the line and I waited and there was this woman named Suzanne in front of me and she said to Hanson who was sitting there, well, I'm on the White House Fellowship Program and I heard that my ears picked up and I said to him, I'd like to be on that program too. And he said somewhat condescendingly uh, to me, no, you have to have signed up for that several months in advance and it's a very special program and no, you can't do that. <laughs> At which... The dean of the school at American University, Nathaniel Preston, who he's an assistant dean or a dean, he pops out. He had been the head of the Washington semester program, which I had been on in your group. And he says, Shartak, what are you doing here? I thought you were going to Indiana. And I said, no, I decided to come here. He said, well, the woman who had the Washington semester fellowship just pulled out. Would you like that fellowship? And I said, oh, would I? I mean, I had to check in my pocket for tuition. And he said, let me see. And he walked back into his office, at which point Hanson looks up at me and he says, I didn't know you were on the Washington semester. Why didn't you tell me that? And he picks up the phone and he calls Marty Meadows. And he puts down the phone and he says a lie. He says, Meadows says you were one of the best students he ever had. Um, <laughs> he told the lie. So he said, okay, where do you want to be? And I said, I want to be in, I had taken a course in legislative politics at Hunter. I want to be in Frank Thompson's office. And he says, okay, we'll set it up. And that's how life began because wow. of you. <laughs> well, uh, 
suspect you're doing me too much credit, but I, I'll take it. <laughs> no, no, there's no question that you just did what you had to do. So now let's talk about you instead of me. So let's <laughs> go back to the Philippines. I know you All once right. told me that you were bar mitzvahed in the camp while you were being interned. Yes. I don't know how my parents did it. They somehow persuaded the Japanese commandant to give me, a, me and my father a pass to get out of the camp to go to the synagogue for my bar mitzvah. They wouldn't let all three of us out. Apparently, they didn't want the whole family out at one time in case we made a hasty escape. <laughs> I don't know what the thinking was. Anyway, that's what happened, and it's probably rather unusual. I, I doubt that any of the Axis powers ever granted a, <laughs> a pass for a bar mitzvah to anyone else. <laughs> during so, World War II. What was it like being in the camp, Marty? Well, <laughs> were they the it, devil were they the devils that have been portrayed in all the war movies hitting people with rifle stocks or, <laughs> or, or what was it like? Well, this keep in mind this was not a military camp. This was for civilian prisoners. It was a concentration camp for oh, close to 4,000 so-called enemy aliens, enemies of the Japanese, British, American, uh, any number of people, French, etc. So uh, the main, the main problems, of course, were food. Everyone would rank that first: insufficient food, and second, of course, the crowded living conditions. The, the, I should point out, Santa Tomas was had been and still is today, of course, a, a university. Uh, it was known as the oldest university under the American flag. It had been established by the Spanish way back in sixteen, early 1600s. So uh, this was the university. We lived in classrooms. So depending on the size of the classroom, the number of occupants would vary. In, in my room, which was rather large, there were about, oh, it varied 60 to 70 men at a time. So the food and the crowded living conditions would be, of course, the main points to emphasize as far as what it was like in the camp. So we spent over three years from January 45, uh, 42 to, to February of 45 when we were liberated. So I went from, I was about 110 pounds at the age of 11 when we were interned. And when we were freed, there was a big weighing machine, a scale in, in the lobby of the main building where I, where I lived. So when we were freed at the age of 14, I was, uh, I weighed 69 pounds. Whoa, that's <laughs> incredible. What was the food like? I mean, where did you get food? Well, at first, it wasn't too bad. They, the uh, Japanese civilians were in charge of the camp for the first two years. So things weren't as bad as they became when the military, Japanese military, took over for the third year. As American forces were approaching the Philippines, of course, the Japanese military took over and began cracking down more and more. Toward the end of 1944, we were getting basically two servings a day and something like 600, 700 calories a day. In the morning, we got, we called it lugao, sort of a, a weak rice mush. And then uh, in the evening, it was some sort of a watery vegetable, mainly vegetable stew with perhaps a little rice thrown in. So a lot of people at one point, well, an average of at least one a day was dying. Internees were dying toward the end. One day, I remember six people died. So the malnutrition was getting to a lot of people. My father, for example, had developed beriberi. His legs were swelling up. And things were fairly bad toward the end by the time we were liberated. 
First of all, who did the cooking? Were you guys expected, were the people who were interned expected to contribute to the labor of keeping oh, the yes. going? Yes. Yes, indeed. The camp, basically the camp ran itself. We had committees for everything, like sanitation, uh, cooking, peeling the vegetables. My, for example, my father was on one of the sanitation squads. <laughs> And my mother was on one of the vegetable peeling squads. For example, the in the morning an announcement would come, oh, squad number whatever it was, number three, show up to peel vegetables today, or, or things like that. So everybody, certainly every adult, had a, an assignment for the most part. So we we... The attorneys ran the camp, uh, of course, uh, at the direction of the Japanese commandant. Did you ever set eyes on the Japanese commandant? Did you know what kind of reputation he had? Oh, yeah. Well, there were several of them. They changed periodically. Yeah, we could see them. They're, they had a small building just off to the side of the main building where I was. There were several buildings, the education building uh, over toward the other end. Yeah, they, they had an office uh, in the this little building, and we could see them. But for the most part, uh, we didn't really interact much with, with the Japanese. At, at roll call, we had to stand in front of our rooms, and they'd, they'd walk by. The guards would walk by uh, just parading along the corridor. And when they came past our room, the monitor, each room had a monitor, and the monitor would say, bow. <laughs> so we would all bow as they walked by, and then we'd straighten up. <laughs> so they didn't really bother you unless you didn't bow or something like that or they thought they suspected you of say smuggling in something uh say a newspaper and then you were in trouble what kind of trouble in other words were there... well, it, it would depend on the situation they'd beat you up i didn't witness this incident as an example but i heard about it everyone talked about it a woman well, elderly woman, she had just finished washing some clothes and was walking along, did not bow. I don't know if she saw the sent Japanese sentry or not. She didn't bow, and he supposedly, as I said, I didn't see this, he supposedly knocked her down for not bowing, but, that, you know, that, as I say, unless provoked, they didn't really bother you. Now, Marty Meadows, what about your education? I mean, you ended up as a professor at American <laughs> University with lots of honors. You were chosen to go here and go there. But how did you get educated? Uh, well, fortunately, you know, everybody was interned. Uh, teachers were interned, doctors, everybody. It was a collection of every imaginable occupation. So the teachers uh, set up, you know, a... a regular education department and of course the course offerings were quite limited as were the textbooks and you know material things like that but when i entered the camp i was in sixth grade and so that was in early 42 so i finished up sixth grade went through seventh grade, went through eighth grade, and had started first year high school classes. Uh, this was would be in the fall of 1944, but then the bombing start, American planes began bombing the Manila area, and so classes were called, uh, class, you know, classes were suspended, so, you know, I did the, uh, <laughs> The basics, shall we say, uh, you know, English and math, history, things like that. But as I said, the materials available were quite limited. In some cases, you'd have one textbook for a class, and you'd have to schedule uh, your time for <laughs> reading it. So 
it, it wasn't the best, but it served. When I got back to the U.S. and went to Oregon, Portland, Oregon, the closest high school, we w- walked over there, and they said, well, you did not complete first-year high school, but if you take these classes during summer school, we arrived in May, so they, after completing summer school, they gave me credit for first-year high school, which, of course, had been cut short in the camp. And so I went on and finished um, three more years of high school in Portland but, uh, before going on to the University of Oregon. Okay, so I want to go back to the camps, if I may, yeah, and, and sure. ask you, what was it like when uh, Manila started getting bombed, you mentioned? Was that a fearful time for you? You mean by which? By the Japanese or the Americans? by the Americans. Americans, And you could certainly talk about the Japanese bombing, too, either way. Well, the uh, Japanese bombing started uh, right away in December of 41. We, of course, hadn't expected the outbreak of war. We didn't have any uh, underground shelter at our house, but my father had one put in, and we used to, whenever this bombing started, we'd go down into the air raid shelter underneath the kitchen. But when the Americans started, of course, it was a different matter. That was something we were looking forward to. The Japanese, which reminds me, you asked about Japanese treatment. They they said, do not look out of windows. <laughs> at the bombings, but of course everybody did. If they caught you doing it, obviously, then you were in trouble, but nobody paid much attention to that. Marty, why were they concerned about looking out the windows? I don't know. They just uh, didn't didn't like to uh, have their problems seen by us, I guess. Just one of their... uh, typical irritating orders that we were supposed to follow. How did you did know? Not. Marty, yeah. how did you know the, how the war was going? Were there clandestine radios? Or yes. Anything? There was at least one clandestine radio that was in the camp. Of course, we didn't know about it, but a few people did, and uh, information was passed around that way. But, uh, of course, the uh, rumors were <laughs> the uh, notorious Rumor mill was alive and well in the camp. All kinds of rumors were constantly spreading about the course of the war. But there was information from a radio in the camp that obviously was concealed. Would have been big trouble for those responsible if it had been discovered. Now, what about General MacArthur? After all, he had left. He was out of there, and I shall return. And He's been glorified in a lot of movies about this. Did he figure in any of what you were going through? Not directly. We, of course, kept hearing about him. He had a pretty good propaganda background, but we didn't have any direct knowledge, most of us, apart from what came through the clandestine radio. MacArthur, though, uh, was pretty well regarded by most internees because the Americans landed up north of Manila in, uh, yeah, I guess it was January, I keep forgetting, of 45. And at one point, MacArthur ordered, it was called a flying column, to come down and rescue the camp because the rumor was that we were to be executed shortly. So this so-called flying column, the 1st Cavalry, 37th Infantry, and let's see, 44th Tank Battalion, went through Japanese lines, broke through the lines, came down and this dashed to Manila and freed us on the night of February 3rd. Do you remember it? Do you remember that exact moment? Oh, of course. Can't possibly forget it. Tell us. Well, we were we started hearing, as I said, rumors are always flying about what was going to happen. We're going to be freed this time or that time or the next time. But on the third, we began hearing these distant explosions. And, of course, everybody began talking about, hey, maybe they're they're coming. And that night, 
there was always a blackout, of course. There had been for a long time a blackout. We were sitting in the hallway. My parents and I were sitting in the hallway of the main building. It was dark, of course. It was about, oh, I'd say 8, 8.30 at night, something like that. And suddenly we hear, we weren't far from the main entrance, we hear from that direction yelling, the troops are here, they're here, they're breaking in. And, of course, we dashed out through the front door of the main building, and we see these tanks coming down from the main entrance to the camp coming down toward the main building with headlights or the lights, searchlights playing out and a few Japanese guards were trying to shoot at the the tanks with pistols. They got cut down, of course, and it was just pandemonium. It's hard to describe a moment like that. The troops were soon with us, handing out goodies, chocolates, and things like that. Everybody was going crazy. There were a number of deaths, Japanese and and Americans. uh, Bodies were put along the corridor where we had been sitting. This was on the first floor. The room I lived in was on the third floor. But uh, buildings, wounded, dead. Yeah, it was a madhouse. A number of Japanese holed up in the education building, and negotiations lasted a couple days because they had a number of internees as hostages in the building. And uh, after these negotiations, the Japanese were allowed to pass through American lines safely to their own lines. And the hostages were freed, safe and sound. Did you think, uh, Marty, that the rumors you heard about the potential for executing everybody were real? Well, we couldn't be sure. We heard rumors, but we didn't know for sure, and there was no way to tell. It's still uh, being argued whether they intended to execute us or not. (laughs) As far as I know, there's nothing definite about it. The story is that, again, I I didn't witness this, but everyone seems to agree that when the troops came in, they came into the main building where we lived and went under the main staircase and found all these munitions that supposedly were to be used to blow up the place. But I, I can't confirm that personally. That That was a widespread story. Who was the first American you spoke to when they came in? Oh, boy. I can't recall. I, I did latch on to well, A lot of younger kids did latch on to individual GIs, and I did, I did get connected with a, I'll never forget his name, a really nice young guy named Bernard Moore. And uh, he was from New York, as I recall. And they were so kind to us. Uh, I'm going to break down here. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, that, I remember his name, but I don't recall whether he was the first one I spoke to. But they looked like gods to us, you know, these <laughs> big strapping guys that, yeah, anyway, it was it was a great feeling. <laughs> Did you you think your father ever felt badly about having kept you in the Philippines? Well, I suppose so. I I never heard him express that, but I'm sure that they were regretful. There wasn't really much opportunity to leave before the war even if we had known as many people did know, and mil- many military dependents were being evacuated before the war. In other words, the government uh, suspected something was going to happen. But they did try to prevent civilians from leaving. So even if we'd wanted to leave, we might not have been able to. But I, I never heard my father say anything about that. Uh, but I, I do know that like, like other parents in the camp, they they gave a lot of their food to me as opposed to eating it themselves. So that's 
as I said, that was pretty common, I think. So the, the Japanese, as portrayed in the films, were always, you're really mean bastards. But they let you out to go for your bar mitzvah with your father. Uh, yes. And I'm wondering, you know, the Germans, their allies were anti-Semitic. How about the Japanese? Well, you know, that's an interesting point. They did not seem to be particularly anti-Semitic at all. I don't know what accounts for that, but they didn't really do anything along the lines of the Germans and the Nazis and the fascists. It just didn't work that way. I, I don't know. So, so looking back, Marty Meadows, on this experience, what did you think about the people who had kept you captive as individuals or as a class? Uh, well, actually, I find it difficult to think of uh, Japanese in a neutral way. I simply because of my own personal consequences of the internment, my eyes were shot in the camp. I always had terrible eyesight, although that did keep me out of the Korean War. They tried to draft me, but my eyes were too bad to go into the service. And how, what happened in the, in the camp that made your eyes so weak? Well, I, I assume the major factor would be the malnutrition, but I did a lot of reading. One of our... <laughs> or at least one of my main time-consuming activities was reading. I read enormously, uh, enormous amounts of books of, of all kinds. There was a library in the main building, and uh, I used to stand in line to watch books going by and pick out the ones I wanted. So... Also, there's something that's always sort of puzzled me, and you know that I'm your biggest fan, and I am. Yeah. But your voice is very distinctive. Yeah. Is there a reason for that? I mean, did something happen there, or, or is it just the way you are? No, I don't think that my voice uh, was affected, not that I know of, uh, was affected by the camp. My eyes were, as I say, my teeth, well, not my teeth, my gums, a uh, bad case of... Yeah, true periodontal disease ever since then. So, as I say, it's hard to dissociate personal results in uh, assessing uh, attitudes towards Japanese. I, I, I know that most Japanese, even at that time, were, were not beasts and evil monsters and so on, but you know, it's hard to have a neutral view of things. Did you ever make a friend among the Japanese who were there in the camp? No, no. Uh, that just no. wasn't that just wasn't happening and they didn't No. They didn't, didn't happen. happen. You know, speaking well, it could it might have, but not in my case certainly. I didn't know of anything like that uh, among others. Have you so, been back, Marty? Have you been back to, to the university and to where you were interned? Yes, uh couple of times in the 50s and 60s, and not since then. Things have, of course, changed quite a bit, but yes, I, I have been back. What was it like when you walked back in for the first time? It was strange. <laughs> it, of course, uh, rekindled a lot of old memories, but uh, other than that, um, not too much that I can say. You know, because of the distinctiveness of your voice, I remember one incident at American <laughs> University. Yeah. I was in the library, uh -huh. and I had a roommate, I don't want to use his name on the radio, but <laughs> later became an assemblyman, who used to um, imitate you. Yeah. And he had it dead on. <laughs> so one day, I'm in the AU library, a rare thing for me to do, and I'm looking at the newspaper rack, and from behind me comes, well, Mr. Shartok. <laughs> <laughs> nice to see you in the library. So, <laughs> so I said, shut up, Brian, because that was his first name. <laughs> and I turned around, it was you. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's the way it was. You know, when I think of Marty Meadows, I think of two things, tennis, and I think of um, 
because you're a tennis fanatic and always have. Yes, yes. And in fact, I read something somewhere where you said that you had retired early from AU because you wanted more time to play tennis. Right. And so tennis is one thing, but I don't know why this is, but the words North Borneo come into my mind. What is it about you and North Borneo, or are you going to say, damned if I know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you're referring to the fact that I think it was about the time you were at AU uh, in the Washington semester program, I must have written a, an article on the Philippine claim to North Borneo. Ah, because every time I hear North Borneo, which is not that much on the radio, I'm saying, I bet they're going right. to get Marty Meadows to comment on this, <laughs> being a North Borneo expert. So tell us a little bit about your PhD. What did you write on? Well, I my uh, doctoral dissertation was in the field of political thought, political theory, political philosophy, whatever it's called. I did I did my dissertation on the uh, political thought of Peter Drucker, uh -huh. the, the famous management expert. So that was that was it. <laughs> Was that a tough thing going through a Ph.D., you know, rigor? For most of us, it was. We look back on it and say this is one of the tougher times of our lives. What can you report about what you remember about the, um, the emotional aspect of doing it? Well, it's been so long, I'm not sure <laughs> I can say much. It, it was tough. You had to bone up, uh, as I recall, in my case, at that time, you had to pass. Uh, exams in four fields. Yep. So I don't even recall. Let's see. Comparative government, international relations, uh, of course, political theory. What was the other one? Uh, American government? No. American, probably American politics, right. Yeah. So you had to be able to display some minimum. <laughs> amount of competence in four different fields, and you had to pass language, two language exams. This was at that time. I don't know what it's like today. but Well, by the time I got to NYU, which was a long time ago, yeah. uh, it was exactly the same, exactly yeah. the same right. you know, as that. So t tell us how you got to American University. Let me see. Well, I was finishing up at the University of Maryland, and one of the professors at Maryland was married to the uh, the head of the political science department. Oh, it wasn't a department; it was a school, actually, school of pub. I forget the exact title because it's changed. He was married to the head of that school at AU, and he said, go see her. He referred me to her. So I went over there, and they had an opening at that time. It was in the Washington semester program. Uh-huh, which is where I met you. Yes, so I, that's where I started. I started there in 61, along with Nat Preston, whom you mentioned earlier, and also the third. There were only three. Was Dan Berman there? Yes. He started the, the same year that uh, I did and that Preston did. We all, there were only three Washington semester division classes at that time. And there you, took, you took us everywhere. You took us everywhere. I mean, we went to see Supreme Court justices. Yeah. We went to see, it was an amazing time. I, yeah. I have to bore you with one more personal story. Sure. I don't know if I ever have, but I'll, I'll tell you again anyway. So, my brother and I did not stay at the shul we were in when uh, we were, when we were uh, because of an unfortunate incident. Now, I like to say we were expelled for not doing dioramas on Jew a Jewish <laughs> subject, but that's not really true. We didn't really like it at this particular place. Yeah. And we went, we sort of transferred to the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in Manhattan, which is one of the top places in Reform Synagogue. And Stephen Wise, of course, was a great man and all the rest. Yeah. So we get there, and Rabbi Klein, who was in charge of the whole place, says, okay, to my mother Shirley, I'll take them, but they have to be tutored for their bar mitzvah. And he gets us a guy. And we get to the guy, and as I remember, my brother didn't care for the guy too much because if he heard something he didn't like, he'd kick you in the shins. So, 
So anyway, we get through it. Somehow we get through the bar mitzvah. And years later, I go to AU. So now yeah. it's what, like 11 years later, something like that. And we get a lecture on constitutional law from a guy who looks just like this guy, Dan Berman, who is giving the lecture. And I'm saying, whoa. I said, in the back of my head, I'm saying, how could this be that this guy, he looked like Ernie Kovacs, if I remember correctly. He was a tall guy, you know, and, and he'd written several books in political science. And I say, it just can't be. So I forgot about it. Now I go back to visit with my professor back at Hunter College, Alan Rosenthal. He has me to dinner, and we start talking about our common Jewish boyhoods. And I say to him, you know, there was this guy. He's there. He looked just like your friend Berman from Princeton. I said, well, you know Berman studied for the rabbinate. I say, I did not know that. He said, yeah. He says, hold on. Get on the extension phone. (laughs) He gets on the extension phone, and he calls Berman, and he says, Yeah, Alan, what do you want? Um, And and Alan says, Well, you know, Shartok is here, um, and he remembers, and all of a sudden there's a, and all of a sudden there's a, Berman stops, and he says, I thought the little bee would never remember. (laughs) And it was the same guy. He, he, He had, you know transformed his life. Now he was a political scientist. He hadn't yeah. gone into the rabbinate, and he was the other guy. He was your colleague at, a, yeah. at, at the Washington semester. Right. Yeah. So what did you teach about? What were, what were your, after after you were in the Washington semester part, then you went on to political philosophy, right? I mean, that's what you were teaching. Yes, right, right. Well, the transition probably came or what was accelerated when... Uh, in 60, 1964, I received the Fulbright to teach at the University of the Philippines. So when I came back, it, it was sort of a natural or easier to transfer me from Washington semester because uh, I had been replaced. So I was transferred into the regular the program teaching political theory. So, so wait a second. Let, let's talk about the Fulbright. So now you're going back <laughs> to the Philippines where you had yeah. been interned uh, right. during the war. What was that like? Well, it was great because my parents were still there. <laughs> really? They <laughs> he, stayed, huh? Well, they came back to Oregon, as I said before. Mm. Uh, but my father didn't know what he would do here in the U.S. He'd been in the Philippines since the late 20s, where he met my wife. That's a long story. She was coming from Poland. You mean you you met not your wife, his wife. I mean, his wife. Sorry. (laughs) I'm going fast. So he didn't know what he would do here in the U.S. He'd been in the Philippines since the late 20s. So he went back, restarted the business, which had been destroyed, rebuilt our house, which had been destroyed. And my mother went back and joined him after I went to college, or when I went to college. And So they were still there. In fact, they were there until 1982. Wow. wow. Yeah, they... Then they finally left Manila and moved to Florida. But uh, anyway, I I had a great time at uh, in University of Philippines. My parents saw their grandchildren, our two daughters, for the first time. They had never seen them before. We were in the U.S. They were in the Philippines. <laughs> so it was a Good time all around. I enjoyed the year very much. They had me lecture. That was the year of the uh, election of Johnson versus Goldwater. When you have a Fulbright, the embassy where you are tries to give you uh, where to talk and things like that. So they had me give talks at various places in the Philippines as well as at the University of the Philippines. And did you talk, Marty, about your experiences in the internment? uh, No, I didn't. I just talked. Everybody was interested in the election. And, uh, of course, the concern then was about Goldwater, uh, the apparent threat he posed. So I, I... spoke mainly about American politics. That that was my Fulbright grant. Uh, I don't recall the exact title. It was lecture in, in American 
politics, something like that. But as long as we're on the subject, yeah. um, do you see any similarities between the Goldwater election and the one we're in right now? Well, yes. The the threat or apparent threat that many people saw in Goldwater closely parallels, I think, the apparent threat that many people see in Trump today. And the, if I were lecturing in another country today, I'd probably have a very similar experience trying to explain what was happening in the U.S. to a foreign audience. And what would you explain? What did you explain and what would you explain? Well, I, if I can recall, I pretty much talked about the fact that uh, there's always a base of support for almost any kind of major party candidate. And I pointed out that Goldwater was sure to get at least 40% of the vote, but I was pretty confident he would not win, which, of course, was not very difficult to forecast. When you were at the Washington semester, I know you, you met almost everybody. You took us everywhere. Did yeah. you ever meet Lyndon Johnson? No, no. Okay, so looking back in history, um, and we've all read Caro and all read the rest of that stuff, did you think, uh, do you think Johnson has gotten the place he deserves in American politics, or do you think um, he's entitled to something else? That's tough. That's a tough one. Um, if you could somehow take Vietnam out of the picture, he'd be yeah. one of the great presidents, yeah. I think. But his entire legacy is uh, overshadowed by Vietnam. And, of course, as you know, it forced him to say he was not going to run again. Yeah. And otherwise, he, he was uh, quite outstanding, I think. Yeah. How'd you meet your wife? Well, this was in Oregon, uh, University of Oregon. She was from Iowa. She was teaching in Iowa. She'd come out to Oregon with several of her fellow teachers, friends, uh, just for the summer. And I met her at <laughs> at the in summer school. We were eating in the women's dorm, and I met her there in the dining hall. <laughs> what was the pickup line? Oh, I don't recall <laughs> that. <laughs> Soup is I, good today. So um, you've been married for how long, Marty? This coming April, getting ahead of the story, would be 58 years. But we met, July was 60 years since we met. Wow, wow. And the secret of a long marriage is? Who? <laughs> Let's see. Pretty much tolerance, I think. you got to be tolerant of the other person. I uh, don't let anything bother you. Or as little as possible. <laughs> it's great advice. Tell me, uh, what have your daughters done with their lives? Well, uh, let's see. The younger one has a slight problem. She can no longer hear. She lives in uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, work, works there at Target. And has three Three kids. Uh, one of them already has two kids. Our two great grandchildren. Oh boy. Uh, the other one lives in the Bay, San Francisco Bay Area. She majored in chemistry. Has got an MBA. She worked for Roche Pharmaceuticals for many years. Roche closed their Bay Area offices, and so instead of moving. They gave her the option to move to either New Jersey or Switzerland, uh, neither of which appealed to her. So she just retired. She now works pretty much for nonprofits. She volunteers for various civic organizations and works for them, the, the city planning board, things like that. So tell us about you and tennis. How did that all begin? It happened in Portland in 1946, the summer. My uncle, same name, Martin Meadows, came to Portland for the summer with his wife to visit. Uh, he was a tennis player. He got me started. I got started playing tennis, and uh, 
got my father started playing tennis and made it uh, onto the high school tennis team. And at the University of Oregon, I was on the freshman team and uh, played on and off on the the varsity team in my second year. But then a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of pros came in, and uh, that was the end of my tennis career on the the varsity team. But, yeah, my uncle Martin Meadows started me playing in 1946. Hmm. You've you've done a lot of traveling. You had that early Fulbright. Have you had others? Yes, I was fortunate enough to to, have a Fulbright to the University of Sierra Leone for 1968-69, and that was uh, just a great time, fascinating time. We really enjoyed it. Uh, in fact, I applied to renew my grant for a second year, but I had a bit of trouble with the, the embassy because of the. Uh, <laughs> it's a long story. Um, I'll bet I it involves. You... I'll bet it involves Nixon. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it certainly did. The The embassy, here we go again. It was the 68 election this time. The embassy said, look, why don't you give, we want you to give three lectures at the embassy on the election. And it's aftermath, one before, two after. So I said, sure, okay. So <laughs> I gave the pre-election lecture. It was a packed house. They advertised the embassy, you know, advertised around the Freetown, the capital where where the university is located. And they thought I gave a somewhat critical assessment of Nixon. And uh, in fact, in the audience, there was the head of the local Communist Party. He he made the pilgrimage to Moscow and things like that. He had a Lenin button in his lapel, and in the question period, he he stood up and said, "You know, you've given us a very harsh view of Nixon. Don't you have anything positive to say? <laughs> this this is the communist." Yeah. And I thought for a moment. I said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> I said I couldn't think of any. So anyway, the couple of days later, the USIA guy called me in and said, "Look, I I know we can't tell you what to say, but can you tone it down for your next couple of lectures, which they'd already advertised and didn't want to get out of." So anyway, so, so what'd you I, say to him? I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll think about it, but I, I didn't do anything different. But I, I think I'm pretty sure that word came down, don't renew this guy's grant. <laughs> For, you know, but as I, I was saying, we really enjoyed it, and I did want to stay on. It was really fun. Uh, really, really had a good time there. I traveled throughout Africa. But uh, I think that's what cost me. <laughs> you're, prob- you're probably right. Any great regrets in life? Oh, plenty. <laughs> but that's classified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, teaching is a great profession. And do you stay in touch with your students? Do they Are they as all attentive as I am? Uh, I have to say there's nobody that, comes close to you. There's absolutely no comparison. And I don't do a very good job either. <laughs> well, the idea of um, a political science position seems to me to be ideal for guys like you and me because we we really love what we do, and that's what it's all about, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, this is beside the point, but I, again, in the uh, there was the Seventy-six election. I was at in Scotland, the right. University of Dundee, and the, I had to give lectures there on the the, the six, seventy-six election. Uh, so it's all three times I was 
I taught overseas involved the, the election in this country. And um, the Scotch are famous for being, you know, sort of um, recalcitrant to share a lot. What, what, what was that like? Oh, that, that was very enjoyable also, uh, it, it, especially as it turned out to be a very mild winter in Scotland. Uh, so we, we had tennis. a good time. Did you switch? Yeah, from- well, not as much as uh, elsewhere, but uh, I did manage to get in some tennis. So it was a good year. Well, I have two things to say. We're out of time. Okay. Uh, we've been in conversation today with Dr. Martin Meadows, former professor of mine, an internment camp survivor, and tennis player extraordinary. I have two things to say. Uh, Marty, thank you for everything that you've done for me, and much love to you and your wonderful family. Appreciate your being with us today very much. Well, thank you very much, Alan, and I really appreciate your thoughtfulness. I can't thank you enough. been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.